0: Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here Jackie Luckman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the role of Iran and Russia on the Uh, global economic stage and also uh, in terms of geopolitics. Also going to be discussing uh, the West African country of Mali and what its role uh, means and not only within world politics, but specifically within the Ukraine war and much more. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. Before we can move on, we are very happy to be joined today by geopolitical analyst and author Pepe Escobar. Pepe, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Great to be with you guys. Uh, And greetings from Paris in NATO, (laughs) Stan.
0: Absolutely. Well, we really appreciate you having you on, Pepe. And, you know, in, in our current political moment on the global stage, I feel like there are some fraying at the edges of uh, certain systems that have been in place for some time, and I feel like we're seeing uh, more and more different and alternative platforms for not only economic partnerships, but cooperations on different levels emerging as well. And uh, I feel like there's an interesting dynamic amongst the uh, countries that have been uh, targeted by the U.S. government, I mean uh, namely Iran and Russia. I mean recently uh, the first Eurasia economic Forum was held in uh, Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, We saw Vladimir Putin, of course, the the president of Russia, uh, recently at the Supreme Eurasian Economic Council meeting that supported uh, extending, uh, you know, free trade agreements between uh, that body and Iran. And so I feel like uh, not only with the issue of the Ukraine war, but just sort of generally as it seems that uh, more and more countries are uh, developing ways to try to get out from under the hegemony of the U.S. and the dollar. And I'm just wondering how you're sort of analyzing all that, Pepe.
1: Yes, this is all inscribed in a much larger historical process, which is uh, Eurasia integration. This is a process that has started many years ago In fact, slowly but surely in the past decade, and especially in these past few years, before the start of Operation Z in Ukraine, it was gathering steam, uh, bilaterally, uh, reunions of uh, the BRICS, uh, the idea to expand the BRICS to what uh, it's been already called in Russia BRICS Plus, meetings of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, the personal meetings between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, um, the expansion of the, new, the Chinese New Silk Roads, sustainable development, trade and development all across Eurasia, and the Russian idea, which is called officially Greater Eurasian Partnership, and how they are going to interact with each other. So this is a, an extremely, I would say, game-changing in terms of a, of a historical Uh, movement of tectonic plates. And what happened last week in Kyrgyzstan, this first uh, meeting of the Eurasian Economic Council, uh, there was, uh, well, just uh, I'm sure a lot of you know about this in the US, or or in fact you don't know, there was virtually no coverage whatsoever across the West. And this is a very, very important meeting because they were not only the five members of the uh, Eurasian Economic Union. Okay, just to remind you all, uh, Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Armenia, and Belarus, they were discussing further integration, but there were other uh, nations, states, there were guests, including nations from Southeast Asia and from South America as well, which proves that the Eurasian Economic Union, they are looking at different parts of Eurasia, but the rest of the world as well, like Brazil, Argentina, and in, in, the, in the Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Indonesia, in the Middle East, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates. So they want to strike free trade deals between the Eurasian Economic Union and all these nations. And this is already a, a work in progress. And, of course, a key partner in all that is Iran, because Iran, I call, I, I call them both, uh, half ingest just, the sanctioned. Iran and Russia, right? Iran has uh, over 40 years of experience of dealing with um, American sanctions. And uh, Russia could learn a thing or two from Iran. The difference is Russia was, at least until a, a few weeks ago, interconnected with inter- international financial system. And Iran is not. Iran is completely disconnected. So uh, in terms of, for instance, bartering, The Iranians can propose a lot of deals to the Russians in terms of uh, integrating their currencies, the the Iranian real and the ruble as well, and they are working on it. And they are even uh, interconnecting in terms of uh, uh, payment systems. They're going to integrate the Russian uh, payment system with the Iranian payment system. And they are progressing much, much faster than Russia and China. And this is something that I highlighted on my, on my column this week. Because the Chinese are still very much exposed to Western financial interest and American banks and the American financial systems, they have to, to go on extremely carefully. And that's what they're doing. The big Chinese banks, you know, Bank of China, ICBC, even the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank that finances projects all across the new silk roads, they they cannot simply ditch the dollar and start doing deals based on yuan and bilaterally with other nations' currencies. This is a gradual process in terms of China. But with Russia and Iran, they, can, they are already stepping up, and this is big, big news for Many other players across Eurasia, they're looking at it, Okay, we're next. Uh, India, for instance, Uh, Russia and India, they are increasing their deals in bilateral deals in their own currencies. It will happen with Pakistan. It will happen with other members of Eurasia that are even not part of the Eurasia Economic Union. So it's it's a work in progress and it's a high speed train that already left the station a long time ago, in fact. (laughs) Yeah, I think
0: that's the case. And, you know, you you raise an interesting point when you note how, you know, the meetings of these different uh, economic bodies uh, really gets uh, no coverage in terms of a mainstream media here in the United States. And I'm wondering why you you think that is, Pepe, because, I mean, you know, we maintain here on the show that, uh, you know, Americans, people of the U.S., are some of the most propagandized uh, in the world uh, without even really being uh, aware of it. And a part of that process is this uh, way of having an extremely narrow view of what's happening in the world and sort of uh, implicitly positioning the United States as the center for all things, you know, uh, important and worthwhile of attention on the uh, global stage. And so it seems like there can't even be an acknowledgement of uh, some uh, institution or effort happening outside of the desires of uh, Washington, you know what I mean? And so in yes. terms of not only sort of trying to gin up, really, manufacture consent for whatever war or a conflict or anything else the U.S. is interested in for uh, its own reasons, uh, but also seemingly to try to have a population that's, you know, malleable for things that very well could be harmful to them.
1: Yes, and especially in this this particular case of financial and trade integration all across Eurasia, which is this largest mass on the map, it's very easy to to see where Eurasia starts and where it doesn't end, because we can even consider, and we should consider uh, Europe as a peninsula of Eurasia. So this is what uh, traditional geopolitical theory calls the heartland, and everything that happens in the heartland, historically, except for maximum the past two hundred years, uh, was uh, permanent all over the planet. So we have this uh, little historical interval of two uh, two hundred years or so, where the West. Was were basically dictating the rules first by the British Empire and then by the American Empire, and this historical cycle is coming to an end, and we're coming back to the the preeminence of Eurasia with the big Eurasian powers in the helm: China, India, Russia. The three, by the way, happen to be BRICS members. That's the original uh, <laughs> RIC or R I C. Russia, India, China. Now there is an alternative RIC, Russia, Iran, China, which is what I concentrated on in my latest column when I was talking about this closer integration of Russia and Iran. So all these matters in terms of the American elites are anathema. You cannot talk about these. And you have to keep them completely outside of the specter of vision and analysis of most of the American population, well, uh, like many foreigners, I lived in the U.S. on both coasts. I lived in California and I lived in Washington. So, when you live in the we- in the U.S. and you come from Europe or from Asia, you see how much of an gigantic island mentality is predominant in the U.S. You know, uh, news from uh, the outside world or the world out there are practically non-existent or are reduced to cliches. An important geopolitical and geoeconomic developments like Eurasia integration, which is the big story of the 21st century, most people don't even know about or don't know the essential details about it because the mainstream media simply refuses to address it or when they address it, let's say in a, uh, a cultural program on PBS, for instance, something like that. It's very superficial. And on the on the big newspapers, the papers that dictate uh, the narrative for the rest of America, Washington Post, and New York Times, essentially, they are derided or dismissed. Uh, so it's very complicated to, to understand foreign policy when you are an average American citizen and you rely only on American mainstream media uh, sources of information.
0: Definitely. And, and you know, the column that you were referencing is one that you recently uh, published in The Cradle entitled The Sanctioned Ones, How Iran, Russia Are Setting New Rules. And I was thinking as you were giving your comments there, Pepe, about how, you know, the U.S. uh, seems to have a real pattern in terms of how it, you know, deals with countries like Iran and Russia that they find to not be, you know, sufficiently obedient to the whims of Washington. I mean, if we look at uh, how the U.S. continues to, you know, hold up the issue in terms of the JCP POA or the Iran nuclear deal, certainly in terms of Russia, which, I mean, it's literally uh, engaged in uh, a proxy war uh, with Russia through Ukraine, you know, trying to drive seemingly more and more towards open conflict with Russia, the more that that escalates. It just always seems like U.S. imperialism has this very uh, uh, violent, militaristic response to these countries that, you know, don't want to uh, uh, play ball against their own interests, which I feel like is fundamentally what the U.S., uh, you know, it coerces a lot of countries to 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 do. And so in a strange way, as the U.S. tries to isolate country that goes against its whims, it often feels like Washington is just further isolating itself. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And, uh, and the most extraordinary thing is that even when you look at uh, the intellectual capital that can be found in circles of power in New York, uh, in the East Coast, uh, in the Beltway, in D.C. itself. But uh, it's amazing that they're absolutely incapability of understanding other points of view, respecting other points of view, or even trying to engage in a, a constructive dialogue. This could be with the Chinese, with the Russians, with the Iranians, and with every other nation uh, across the Global South. And the Global South now, uh, <laughs> I, I, we, we could say that now the Global South is woke. Because now they woke up to what is really going on and say, okay, we had enough. The Americans have had a free ride for too long. Uh, We are tired of being exploited. We need an alternative system. And that's why the American elites are now really freaking out for the first time, seriously, uh, in the past few decades. Because uh, the Ukrainian adventure that they started is not going so well. Uh, The fact that China continues to be stronger and stronger every day economically and even uh, geoeconomically and also geopolitically with their allies all over the global south and their investments all over the global south. The fact that the, the Eurasians are integrating themselves is a ve- like, like I said, it's a very long, complicated process with lots of turbulence, but it's happening. And you have now institutions that are coordinating this integration. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the BRICS, uh, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, the Eurasia Economic Union, uh, the new Silk Roads, uh, the Chinese New Silk Road projects, the bilaterals between all the major players. So this is something that didn't exist, let's say, 15 years ago. It was a very disjointed uh, 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 panorama, you know. Not anymore. The integration is rolling. It's, like I said, very complex. But the fact that uh, now we have institutions that are driving this integration, and now the two, let's say, unofficial but semi-official leaders, Russia and China, are very well integrated themselves in their strategic partnership, of course, with lots of bumps. But basically, they are driving towards the same goal, which is... We need an alternative financial geoeconomic monetary system, and we are going to implement it. So this is going to be implemented by the Chinese, by the Russians, by the Eurasian Economic Union. It will be discussed uh, uh, in this Shanghai Cooperation Organization, where we also have Iran, Pakistan, and uh, India. And the closer, very close integration between India and Russia, very, very important. And the fact that Russia is a sort of middleman, has been in the past few years between India and China, getting them together little by little as well. So these processes are extremely complex, long term, but they are happening. And they have been happening for years now. And this is something that for the American elites is the ultimate nightmare, because it proves that... uh, the our way or the highway narrative, which was the only narrative in the market so far, it's over. And it's impossible for them to live with it because America doesn't have the military the military power that they had after the Second World War. They don't have the economic dominance of 50, 50% of the planet that they had after the Second World War. Uh, They don't don't manufacture victory, anything apart from a few weapons and uh, uh, virtual economics. So and, you know, the factor of the world is China. The the number one military power in the world with uh, hypersonic weapons is Russia. Uh, The center of uh, economic interaction in the world is not Atlanticism anymore, is across Asia, Eurasia and East Asia. So when when they look at the big picture, no wonder they're freaking out. (laughs)
0: Certainly. And, you know, speaking of Russia, Pepe, you also recently published a piece about, you know, uh, Russia in terms of the dynamics with uh, NATO and what is or what could be coming next. I mean, as it pertains to NATO, Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine, because I think you're correct that in terms of, uh, you know, NATO, U.S. and the West, that uh, the war there is not turning out precisely as they would like, even though they tell us in the U.S. something quite different. (laughs) And so, I mean, what do you make of how this dynamic is playing out now in terms of how uh, NATO was going to be operating? Since, I mean, it seems like uh, uh, the the war itself is poised to basically continue to go on and on. You know, I mean, recently we saw this uh, $40 billion aid package, you know, quote unquote, aid package to Ukraine ordered from the uh, Biden administration. And so, you know, I mean, how, you know, how do we even see this thing moving forward from this point as it seems like it's set to just kind of, you know, go on in a, circle
1: exactly that's that's a very good point about the 40 billion don't for, don't forget that most of these 40 billion the ukrainians will have to pay back how they can't it's an absolute failed state and i had a confirmation this uh, this morning from their finance minister 75% of their budget nowadays comes from uh, aid and grants, <laughs> which they're going to have to repay most of them. IMF, European Union, foundations, whatever, you know. So how they're going to be repaid? They're, they're going to be basically raped and pillaged, which is something that already started a few years ago. And now it's going to turn into their, uh, their wheat industry, essentially, which is going to be basically all the wheat that they have is going to be transfer to Europe, assuming Europe finds a way to transport the wheat from blocked Ukrainian ports to Europe. For the moment, it's uh, trucks, you know, across the Danube River, which is completely crazy. The Ukrainians themselves, they mined the port of Odessa. And that's the reason why they cannot export anything from Odessa. And the Russians said, look. We can demine the port and help you Europeans to get Ukrainian wheat, but we need something in return. So that's very well. And this is something that obviously American mainstream media is not going to to explain in detail because uh, it ruins the narrative that Ukrainians are the victims in the whole story. And it gets even more complicated when you see that, uh, as the Russians saw from the beginning, And as the Chinese and the Iranians and others in Eurasia also saw it after a few days, this is a proxy war. This is a war between NATO and Russia. Everybody knows that across Eurasia. The problem is NATO cannot be formally, officially engaged in in this war because then we turn into World War III with nuclear weapons. Everybody knows that in Washington, in Brussels, at the NATO headquarters in Mons, in Belgium. Everybody knows that. So it's a proxy war. And how do they do that? Okay, weaponizing the <laughs> virtually dismantled Ukrainian armed forces to death, relying on mercenaries, and obviously relying on these different neo-Nazi battalions or gangs or divisions all across uh, Ukraine, but especially in Donbass and lately in uh, Mariupol before they were completely uh, expelled, captured, exterminated, etc. And obviously it's not it's not working because the Russians knew this was going to happen they were prepared for it even though they are in the middle of a vicious ground war in fact but with only 10% of their forces even less we have estimates that only 7% of Russian forces are actually in Ukrainian territory Uh, Their best weapons, they haven't released them yet, only sparingly hypersonic missiles, for instance, Sarmats or Zircons, and uh, it's like they are fighting with uh, almost two hands behind their backs, because they don't see this as a war. From the beginning, they said, this is a denazification and demilitarization campaign. And they consider the Ukrainians as brothers or cousins. So they, they are not uh, in Ukraine to do like the what the Americans did in shock and awe in Iraq in 2003, destroy the whole country and destroy the whole infrastructure. No, they are over there to demilitarize the country, to get rid of uh, as many neo-Nazis as possible, not destroy the physical infrastructure, not antagonize the civilian population, and most of all, not kill. The civilian population. It's a completely different mindset when you compare their operation with the American wars or proxy wars of the of the past twenty years, starting with Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, everywhere. You know. So uh, this is uh, it's more or less clear all across Eurasia. This is these are the stakes, and people see that NATO has proved to be. Absolutely irrelevant and embarrassingly irrelevant. And that's another reason why this narrative is off limits all across Europe and all across uh, North America as well. What you mentioned a few minutes ago that Ukraine is winning. And now even, I would say, some niches of American mainstream media are recognizing, ah, no, they're not winning at all. (laughs) They're being exterminated. We need to change the narrative. And that brings me to this uh, stunning admission by the president of the United States himself writing uh, in the New York Times saying that now, he actually, he actually wrote that, not he, him because he, he doesn't know how to write anymore, we all know that, uh, his handlers wrote that uh, the uh, end game for the West now is a stalemate that would lead to diplomatic solutions. This is completely absurd, because until literally yesterday, the objective of the Biden administration was infinite war, a long war Pentagon style, lasting a decade, just like the the, the Afghanistan Jihad in the 1980s, bogging down Russia in Ukraine, heavily weaponized by NATO, employing a a, a neo-Nazi ink of mercenaries from all over, and lasting indefinitely. They changed their minds again because they they know that this was never going to happen, and the Russians won't let that happen. So now it's a stalemate, which won't be a stalemate. It will be a total Russian victory in Novorossiya, eastern Ukraine. And then the Russians are going to dictate the terms. So there won't be any stalemate. And diplomatic maneuvers, the Russians have been trying diplomatic maneuvers. Uh, When when there was a, a mini breakthrough in Istanbul, I was there at the time. Uh, months and a half ago, so two months ago, after East, um, uh, the meeting in Istanbul, which was uh, uh, organized by Erdogan, even the Russians started saying, oh, we're starting to agree on some points with the Ukrainians and all that. This was immediately uh, broken by the Americans. Say, no way. We want the war to keep on going and now they change their minds again ah we know we we know it's impossible let so let's aim for a stalemate so so it, it's completely crazy because they not only they are completely lost and also the fact that they are losing their proxy war on the terrain and now you cannot hide this from the narrative anymore and that explains why you see uh, some now you're starting to see some stuff on the New York Times and Washington Post saying mm, it's not going so well. We need to try to find a, a different solution. And and from the beginning, they, they they said the only solution is infinite war.
0: Definitely. <laughs> well, we thank you so much, Pepe, for joining us today. We're gonna leave it there. We we'll move to a break thank here you. on by any means necessary on radio, Sputnik can watch 10 DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how the African country of Mali factors into the war in Ukraine, and we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Abayomi Azikiwe, editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Abayomi, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Well, thank you once again for an invitation.
0: Absolutely. And Abayomi, when we look at uh, the countries of Mali and Ukraine, these are, of course, uh, not only very different countries uh, geographically and uh, uh, things like this, but uh, uh, there are some common currents, I think, in terms of conflicts happening uh, within both of those countries that are more uh, intertwined than uh, may seem apparent on the surface. I mean, we know that. Earlier this year, uh, uh, back in April, uh, the Malian government uh, accused French troops of carrying out a massacre there in Mali with following that some support on this uh, assertion by uh, the Russian government. And so I I was hoping you could sort of break down, you know, this relationship between, you know, Russia and Mali and uh, how you see sort of this whole dynamic factoring into the, the current war in Ukraine situation.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's important to look back on the early days of the uh, independence of Mali, uh, which was independent, uh, gained its independence from France in 1960. And during the early period, under Modibo Keita, who was a uh, pan-Africanist and anti-imperialist leader, uh, he had very close relations with the uh, former Soviet Union. Uh, So... That is uh, very important to analyze it uh, within that context. In recent years, uh, the United States and France have had uh, massive troop presence in uh, Mali. Uh, In uh, the early uh, 2013, uh, they uh, airlifted, that is the U.S.-Africa Command, airlifted uh, French troops into Mali ostensibly to fight against jihadists who were attacking in the north as well as the central part of the country. And uh, after that, of course, many years uh, transpired, and there was a military coup in 2020, and then another one in 2021 against the interim uh, government. Uh, Since that time, uh, the Malian government, uh, which is under military leadership, invited in uh, the Wagner group, which is a Russian uh, private uh, military services corporation uh, to assist uh, with the internal security of the country. Now, mind you, uh, they have had uh, involvement from the U.S.-Africa Command uh, for over 10 years. Uh, The French, uh, with the uh, French uh, Foreign Legion, uh, have been involved as well for many, many years. Uh, Yet the security situation in Mali has not improved. In fact, it has worsened. So there was a lot of discontent uh, with the previous uh, civilian government, which prompted uh, the coup d'etat of uh, 2020 and 2021. And uh, today, uh, there's very uh, strained relations between France and uh, Mali. Uh, the French uh, threatened to withdraw their military forces if the Wagner Group was allowed uh, to continue its operations in Mali. The uh, current uh, military government in Mali said, fine, just leave. Then they ordered the uh, French uh, diplomatic uh, personnel to leave uh, within 72 hours. So, yes, it is, a, it is a very tense situation between France and Mali, and a lot of it has to do uh, with the role of this uh, Russian uh, corporation. Now, we also have to keep in mind that uh, a lot of African countries in the Sahel region and East Africa and the Horn of Africa are suffering immensely uh, due to the uh, war in Ukraine. The sanctions uh, that have been leveled against the Russian Federation, which makes it difficult uh, for economic transactions to take place. Uh, this, of course, has created extreme uh, food deficits uh, in both uh, the Sahel region as well as uh, the Horn of Africa. So these two countries are interrelated. Uh, And Africa is very much interrelated uh, with the Russian Federation uh, due to the trade and uh, efforts on the part of uh, the Russian Federation uh, to have good relations uh, with as many African countries as possible, which the United States is opposed to vehemently.
0: Certainly. Certainly. And, you know, I think it really is important what you just noted about how, you know, uh, different countries on the African continent, along with, uh, I think, quite a number of others in the uh, uh, global south uh, are definitely being impacted in terms of the uh, global food crisis that's been exacerbated because of the war in Ukraine. And you mentioned uh, the Sahel uh, a little earlier too, uh, Abayomi. And I I wanted to talk a little bit more about that because, I mean, earlier this month, the the military government in Mali that you uh, were just mentioning, mentioning, uh, announced that uh, it didn't want to be a part of France's uh, G5 Sahel platform. And there's been a lot of uh, issues and a lot of happenings uh, within the Sahel region and uh, within the African uh, countries that were uh, uh, former uh, uh, colonies of France. And we saw, you know, mass demonstrations resisting the presence of these French troops and things like that. And so, I mean, how do you see uh, uh, France's uh, project in the, the Sahel sort of connected into this?
2: Well, it's in a crisis uh, because uh, the governments, even the military governments, uh, where you have personnel who are now considered uh, military presidents and heads of state, uh, were trained uh, by France and the United States. Uh, So it's a contradiction that uh, these uh, forces are now questioning the viability and the effectiveness of uh, the military uh, training and assistance that they're receiving uh, from these imperialist countries. Uh, this is also compounded uh, by a piece of legislation that has now passed the U.S. House, and that is a uh, piece of legislation that's designed to, quote, counter Russia's malign influence on the African continent. Now, this is clearly an act uh, to prevent any type of self-determination and independent foreign policy on the part of African states. It has passed the uh, U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, My understanding is that it's in the Senate right now. Uh, It could pass there as well. And this will only reinforce neocolonialism on the continent of Africa. Uh, What basis uh, does the United States Congress and the White House have to tell African states that they cannot trade uh, with the Russian Federation or any other state, uh, for that matter. It's a, it's a very dangerous situation. Uh, they could also uh, eventually pass uh, resolutions and bills uh, related to Africa's relationship uh, to the People's Republic of China or the Islamic Republic of Iran or the Republic of Cuba or the Bolivarian Republic of uh, Venezuela or Turkey or any of these countries that Africa has uh, relations with, the African Union member states, Uh, It's no business of uh, the United States. Uh, What they're trying to do is to choke off uh, Russia's relations uh, with these uh, developing countries in order to attempt uh, to uh, stifle and even weaken uh, Russia. Now, Lloyd Austin, who is the U.S. Secretary of Defense, he went to uh, Eastern Europe a few weeks ago in Poland and announced Uh, that uh, their objective was to weaken the Russian Federation. Well, this is an act of war, of course. It continues the existing uh, war, proxy war, uh, between Russia and the United States. And they have no right uh, to say uh, that they can weaken other states. And at the same time, they have no right to tell African countries or any other country, for that matter, that they cannot conduct trade, uh, military cooperation, uh, cultural uh, exchange... Or what other type of relationships they want to have uh, with the Russian Federation or any other country that happens, uh, to be, uh, in conflict uh, with the United States. So this is a very dangerous situation, uh, that the Biden administration has embarked upon. And I believe that, uh, it's going to, uh, inevitably fail. Uh, we've seen, uh, the fact that, uh, their efforts to isolate Russia has collapsed even in, even in Europe. Uh, countries like Germany, Hungary, uh, North um, Macedonia, and many other countries in Western Europe uh, and Eastern Europe cannot afford uh, to cut off trade ties with the Russian Federation. Uh, Germany uh, gets uh, somewhere between 30% uh, and 50% of their oil, uh, 50% of their natural gas. Some countries in Eastern Europe are totally dependent on the Russian Federation for natural gas. And oil. So, if they cut off relations uh, between the Russian Federation and their countries, uh, their states would go into immediate uh, deep recession and probably even uh, depression. And uh, we see it right here in the United States uh, with the inflationary spiral uh, that's crippling uh, working people and poor people in this country who can't afford to buy gasoline, uh, very difficult to buy food, uh, to pay rents. So this war is costing uh, people uh, not only uh, on an international level, but also domestically right here in the United States.
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, that's the the, the interesting thing about the the geopolitical moment that we're in at and I think a sign that Um, sort of uh, uh, trends and dynamics and relationships on the geopolitical scene are beginning to shift to where we see the United States uh, seeming to really expect countries to subvert their own national interests simply to uh, remain in the good graces uh, of the United States. But, you know, it just seems that uh, uh, increasingly we're seeing countries uh, go in uh, the opposite direction, which, you know, I think is eminently a logical, but I think shows a a bit of a a fraying at the edges of uh, imperialism, if you will. And I think we've seen that also at Biomi in terms of how different African governments have been even responding to the uh, war in Ukraine, as uh, the United States and its uh, junior partners, you know, wants to create this idea that the whole world is, you know, in lockstep with Washington as it pertains their um, view of the situation. But I mean, I just, you know, I think that, uh, that hasn't been the case. I mean, the one that sticks out is, uh, you know, South Africa's uh, Cyril Ramaphosa uh, pointing the finger of blame at NATO for uh, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so I feel like on several levels, when we look at both uh, uh, the war in Ukraine, when we look at uh, uh, the U.S.'s broader competition with uh, Russia and China and uh, why the, the different uh, uh, elements of world power are interested in the African continent. I mean, it really seems, Abiyomi, that the real uh, importance of Africa in a number of ways, I think, is evidenced by uh, uh, all these other dynamics surrounding it.
2: It is. And I think it's important. Uh, Chancellor Schultz of Germany visited uh, the Republic of South Africa recently and met with President uh, Cyril Ramaphosa. And uh, Ramaphosa made it clear uh, that they're going to maintain their position of neutrality, uh, in fact, it's, it's really objectively not neutrality. It's a refusal to go along with U.S. imperialist uh, foreign policy imperatives uh, in relationship to Africa. And uh, this is very important. The Non-Aligned Movement was formed uh, 61 years ago in 1961 in Belgrade. Uh, and uh, since that time period, uh, many African, Asian, and Latin American countries have met under the rubric of the uh, non-aligned movement. The purpose initially uh, was to represent a force uh, that could oppose uh, the escalation of tensions uh, between the USSR and the United States during uh, the initial Cold War. Uh, What has happened since then is that with the collapse of the Soviet Union in uh, 1991 and, of course, their allies in Eastern Europe uh, two years before, uh, we have seen a the emergence of a unipolar uh, foreign policy uh, position by the United States. Uh, with the reemergence of the Russian Federation and, of course, the uh, development of the People's Republic of China, the Islamic Republic of Iran, and other states, uh, we're moving into more of a pluralistic or multipolar uh, geopolitical strategic situation. This is a clear threat uh, to the efforts aimed at hegemony Uh, by Washington and Wall Street. So I think that uh, the Biden administration, just like the Trump administration before it, uh, is quite concerned about the emergence of these states uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, in Asia, in Africa, and in Latin America. And they're trying to do everything in their power to prevent this from happening. Uh, But if you look at the situation in terms of the impact of the sanctions against Russia, they have had an impact on the global food supply chains, uh, inputs, agricultural inputs, such as fertilizer and machinery. However, at the same time, there are efforts underway to work around uh, these problems. For example, the trade uh, surplus within the uh, Russian Federation was over $100 billion in the uh, first quarter, and the ruble has strengthened in relationship uh, to uh, the U.S. dollar. And, of course, uh, Vladimir Putin, the president of the Russian Federation, is demanding uh, that any uh, natural gas, oil, or or trade conducted on an international level be done in rubles. So this has strengthened the national currency of the uh, Russian Federation. Even here domestically, we've seen Biden uh, release, he said, millions and millions of barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This is not lowered... Gasoline prices. Gasoline prices are higher now than they've ever been in the United States. We saw the chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, Powell, about a month ago, uh, raise interest rates uh, by half a percent. Yet it has not stopped inflation. It has not stopped the downturn in the uh, stock markets in the U.S. and around the world. So all these measures that are being taken uh, by the Biden administration are having just the opposite effect. Um, sanctions against Russia, of course, has not stemmed uh, efforts to work around uh, these sanctions. And of course, we could talk about the inflation rate here in the United States, and we can talk about the growing solidarity with the Russian Federation, even in Africa, where countries uh, abstain, many countries abstain, uh, many countries uh, have taken a neutral position. Yet, uh, among the masses, uh, the youth, the workers intellectuals, uh, their sympathy and their solidarity uh, with the Russian Federation position vis-a-vis uh, Ukraine. And they have historical reasons as well as
0: contemporary reasons. Definitely. And, you know, I'm also wondering, Abayomi, how you situate the situation in Mali within a broader trends happening in the region. Of course, you know, Mali is surrounded by Burkina Faso and Niger and Cote d'Ivoire and Mauritania and Algeria and countries like this. And so how do the dynamics that we see happening in Mali right now emanate uh, throughout that part of the African continent?
2: Yes. Well, there's a rethinking of the entire process of an alliance with France and the United States, we know in Algeria, uh, that it is, of course, very, very uh, strained relations uh, between uh, the Algiers government and Paris over the uh, history of colonialism there and other issues. Also, uh, in other countries, uh, you mentioned Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, all of them uh, right now Uh, whether it's on a governmental level or a grassroots level, are objecting uh, to the historic role of France and the United States in the internal affairs of their country. So it will be very interesting to see how this works itself out uh, over the next uh, few months. And, uh, of course, uh, we're going to be watching this very closely uh, because uh, the U.S. uh, continues uh, in its effort uh, to not only stifle uh, the Russian Federation, the People's Republic of China, Iran, Cuba, Venezuela, but at the same time to bring other countries around the world uh, to line up behind its foreign policy, uh, which is a dangerous foreign policy, which has no benefit uh, to the people, uh, the majority of the people throughout the world.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Abayomi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio spunnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
3: By any means necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquemont. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today, we're talking about ongoing efforts at uh, censorship and suppression as it regards the war in Ukraine and. Also, uh, interesting ways that the uh, mainstream media is orienting towards uh, some of the forces fighting in Ukraine. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Garland Nixon, co-host of The Critical Hour, right here on Radio Sputnik. Garland, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for inviting me. (laughs) Absolutely. And Garland, it's been reported that uh, YouTube is saying that it has removed 9,000 channels uh, Containing 70,000 videos of supposed Russian disinformation concerning the uh, uh, war in Ukraine, which of course uh, continues to rage on. And this just uh, feels like part and parcel of. Um, a broader clamping down on any alternative view or perspective um, as it pertains to uh, the war in Ukraine. I mean, namely, you know, really, it's mostly just like the broader political and historical context of why the thing is even happening. And a lot of the reality of what's even happening now that doesn't necessarily uh, support the line of Washington, excuse me, and therefore becomes a, you know, target for attack. I mean, of course, we've seen, Russian media platforms outright banned and deplatformed in Europe and the US and things like that. Certainly, uh, you know, uh, Radio Sputnik and, and all of its shows have been, you know, taken off of YouTube and things like that. And the last time we had you here, Gordon, I believe we were talking about the, the latest smear campaign uh, piece from CNN. And so I'm just sort of wondering how you're sort of seeing this uh, 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 move from YouTube here as, I mean, this censorship issue just seems to be intensifying.
4: Yeah. And, and there are two, two, uh,
0: Um, I guess, angles to discuss it from.
4: The first, I think, is this. It's obvious that this is a sign that their narrative is crumbling you know, Russia's losing, um, you know, they're losing a million troops a day. Ukraine's about to, you know, the Azov is about to surround and march on uh, Moscow any day now. You know, these absurd narratives that are very far from reality and they're crumbling because they're absurd. And all people have to do is just, you know, look around for some basic information and they can realize, wait a minute, you know, I'm kind of being had. So when they say disinformation, what they really mean is information what they mean is this is the way i always put it for people out there that are thinking about the whole concept of information disinformation what should i what should i think i always put it like this if you got a jury of 12 people If four of the jurors only listen to the prosecution, four only listen to the defense, and four listen to the prosecution and the defense, who's going to be the jurors that can best make a decision? What they're telling us is, no, 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 only listen to the prosecution. All I'm saying and you're saying and all we're saying is people should have an opportunity to curate their own information, to decide what they want to see. And Twitter's simply saying, no, we've got to stop this information. And and it's like they said, crisis misinformation. It is a crisis to them because this thing's falling apart and people are realizing you're lying to us and we have a right to know the
0: truth. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one of the the main sticking points ever since, uh, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine began was the role of these, you know, far-right neo-Nazi, you know, ultra-nationalist battalions and fighting squads in Ukraine, which became integrated into elements of the military and the police following the U.S.-backed Maidan coup in 2014, right? And, you know, really from the very beginning, it seems like every image that you saw of Ukraine forces, somewhere in there was uh, some kind of uh, uh, neo-Nazi symbology or just straight-up Nazi symbology, uh, to be (laughs) be honest with you, Uh, particularly around the Azov Battalion, which is one of the more well known of the militias, but certainly uh, not the only one. And it's funny, Garland, because of the Times, which is a platform based in UK, recently published an article with the headline Azov Battalion Drops Neo-Nazi Symbol Exploited by Russian Propagandists. So what this is saying is that the uh, this Azar Battalion that I was just mentioning are no longer wearing patches with uh, what's known as the wolf's angel uh, uh, symbol, which is just one of these Nazi symbols up there with the black sun and other images like this. And that's so wild to me that the, the orientation around it, the issue is that people are pointing out, Hey, there are neo-Nazis that are, you know, in this military and that um are doing things to say the very least, that I think require some serious investigation. And oh, by the way, they're getting an incredible amount of money, billions upon billions, uh, from the United States. And so we have to wonder what is uh, uh even really uh happening there. And so the fact that uh that even has to be pointed out, Garland, and also funny because I mean, you know, they may remove the patch, but the tattoos and, more importantly, the actual ideology actually remains. And so when you talk about the narrative falling apart, it does seem as though these platforms are being forced to uh, uh, sort of come up with new ways of explaining these things as as the situation rolls on.
4: You know, it's interesting because being in the black community, one thing that, you know, black people noticed over the course of the years was there was a time when people actually wore these Ku Klux Klan outfits, these absurd-looking outfits. And at some point, people with that ideology understood, eh, you know, this don't go over so good, and they started wearing a suit and tie. David Duke is the one that was people have discussed about that, you know, from the KKK uniform to a suit and tie. So this implies— That the problem with the Azov Battalion was not their ideology. That, hey, the ideology, that that doesn't need to be discussed. The problem was the patch. The problem was the Klan uniform. When you take a person who has an ideology that hates black folks and Jews and probably even Catholics and everybody else, mostly gay people, you name it, that's not a problem. The problem is you just need to take that Klan uniform on. And it is telling to me. To me, I say it's telling to the culture in America or the, in, 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 in the UK, a culture that's willing to um, accept these kinds of radical, violent, racist ideologies as long as they feel that that ideology benefits them in some way. You know what I mean? You, it, there's people particularly, you know, let's be honest, particularly these so-called liberals who run around saying, I'm for all of the marginalized groups. Everything is about a marginalized group. And now we've got people who despise up to the point of execution pretty much all of those marginalized groups. And they're saying, we will support and arm these people. But we just want to make sure you don't necessarily know who they are. Personally, I'm a black person or a Jewish person or or LGBT person or whatever. I'd prefer the patch. That way I'm like, hey, there's a... Nazi over there with a gun probably wouldn't want to walk near him because he'll shoot me. So to some extent, if you're a person who these people would be eyeing for execution, it's not necessarily a good thing because now you can't identify the Nazis unless they take their shirt off because, let's face it, they still all have, like, swastika tattoos and stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, even earlier today, I saw— One guy he had uh, on his forearm, it was just a full portrait of of Adolf Hitler, like a detailed, you know what I mean? And the thing is, they never make any uh, secret of this. I remember not long after um, the invasion began back in February, I happened to be down not far from uh, Sputnik Studios, down by the uh, White House in, in Lafayette Park. And, um, you know, it was this huge demonstration of uh, uh, Ukrainians. And, and not only did you see, you know, sort of symbology of the Svoboda Party, you know, under the leadership of people like Ole Tannenbach, you know, buddies with John McCain and, and things like that. But I mean, you also saw the red and black of the, the right sector. I mean, I, I personally saw someone who had on a, a red and black scarf with Stepan Banderas uh, uh, face on it. And this is a straight up Nazi collaborator. You know what I mean? And so this this element has always been an aspect of and has been so wild during the war in Ukraine about how the presence of these Nazi elements has been treated in the mainstream media. Because at first it was just like outright denial. Mm -hmm. And then um, they started acknowledging it, but say like, "Ah, well, I mean, yeah, there's some Nazis there, but not that many to make any difference. But obviously the the pressure around this has gotten to the point where they feel the need to actually make some token uh, uh, change, you know what I'm saying, into the uniforms and things like that. I I remember, um, I think it was like a clip from NBC Where, you know, there was like this elderly, like grandmotherly woman who was like being trained to fight or whatever by these Ukrainian militia. But, I mean, you see on their patches, like it's a straight up Azov battalion. And so it's like this weird heartwarming story about like a granny getting trained by Nazis to fight the Russians. So this this is the time that we're in, Garland, in terms of how uh, the U.S. war propaganda is playing out. And as such, as we've been saying, it it kind of feels like they're scrambling to still explain away some of these things.
4: Yeah. Also, you know, uh, quite frankly. Frankly, and, and I don't know if you feel the same. I believe I don't I don't believe that change came from Ukraine. I believe here's what happened. And I'm this is just supposition on my part. But what happened? This guy in um Buffalo shoots all these people and he's got the same insignia as the Azov Battalion and everybody starts saying, holy moly, the black sun, the Christ church shooter, the black sun, Azov, the black sun. Hey, you know what? I ain't Sherlock Holmes, but I can put this one together. They're all Nazis and we're supporting Nazis. And it seems like to me the State Department was like, oh, crap, the cat's out of the bag. What are we going to do? I got an idea. I got an idea. We'll change the patch of the Nazis. And, and you know the funny thing about it? The U.S. media and the State Department is, like, embarrassed about it. They're trying to hide it and all that. But if you, if you like, go on Telegram and you look at the Nazis, they've never been embarrassed. Right. They're, like, holding up swastikas, jumping up and down, Sieg heil all over the place, goose-stepping. They're doing all the Nazi stuff. They could never be more proud of being Nazis. But as they like are flamboyant Nazis, the people over here are like, could you, you know, shush with all the Nazi stuff here? You're going to upset our people when they
0: figure out that once again, we're supporting Nazis. Yeah. And, and, you know. Liberals got very upset when people were pointing out about how the Buffalo shooter was wearing the same insignia as some of these Ukrainian militias, but it's just a fact. I mean, even though um, the shooter claimed not to be formally a part of of, uh, innovation, I mean, if people really don't think that there's a connection between, like, you know, these fascists in Europe and the rise of the far right in the United States, we're just fooling ourselves.
4: Can can you imagine if he had on, like, a Black Lives Matter mask or something went in there. Do you think anybody would have said, well, I don't think he has supports black lives. Oh, no. They'd have lost their mind. There you go. Anybody in any way who even utters the word Black Lives Matter must be corralled up and put away for life because they're all a bunch of danger. But he's got on a Nazi mask. Well, you know, he's just a lone wolf guy. Probably thought it was a nice painting.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I swear every time that one of these mass shootings takes place and it's a white man specifically and they're like clearly uh, uh, influenced by these uh, far right uh, reactionary politics that the right wing then tries to somehow say that they were actually on the left or, oh, they were a Bernie supporter. Or in the case of this guy, oh, actually, he was a communist. What I mean, when you look at what he was saying, particularly in his uh, so-called manifesto, the stuff about the, the great replacement theory, I mean, this is obviously like a straight up up a white supremacist, a genocidal ideology that was influenced by some mainstream right wing platforms like uh, Fox News and things like this. Now, you know, I don't think that's sort of the sole influence because he also spoke about um, basically diving into, you know, the far right corners of the Internet and things like this. And so I feel like people are sort of purposefully skewing um, all the different um, elements that makes a shooter like uh, uh, the, the guy in. In, in in Buffalo, and I think you know that's being done, frankly, in a very dangerous way. Uh, uh, that could very well uh, set folks up for yet another tragedy like we saw in Buffalo. Well, we thank you so much, Garland, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, June 4th, 2022. And of course, in twenty minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, if by any means necessary, to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth, we want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to hit us up at two zero two five two one one three two zero. That's two zero two five two one one three two zero. Our operators are standing by. You can also download our shows at sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.m-a-v-e.digital. Also, check us out on sputniknews.com/slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. And as always, today and every day, we are streaming live on rumble.com/slash C as in cat/slash necessary but wherever you are in this world and however you hit us up we most certainly want to hear from you we most certainly do and uh we're going to kick things off today uh for the hour i'm being joined by by any means necessary producer josh gomez josh thanks so much for joining us
5: Thanks so much for having me sean always happy to be on this side of the studio absolutely absolutely and we're always glad to uh
0: have you on uh this side of the microphone josh And, you know, I was just thinking because, of course, you know, it's June 1st, uh, which means it's the uh, first day of Pride Month here in the United States, which, uh, you know, is typically a time that's dedicated to the continuing sort of militant struggle uh, for LGBTQ liberation here in the United States. And I feel like it's always important to highlight the fact that Pride Month like a lot of uh, uh, holidays and observances in the United States. I know we had this conversation yesterday about the sort of depoliticization of holidays in the United States, but pride month has as its roots, uh, a rebellion really an uprising against a uh, racist police terror and homophobic uh, uh, state terror um, in the streets An actual uh, uh, honest to goodness, sort of a struggle that emerged from a real grassroots level from a real uh, oppressed community and over time and over the years like a lot of things um, uh, uh, in this country as it pertains to these sorts of things the the history and narrative of pride becomes you know it can become kind of superficial and uh, very corporate driven you know DC has a reputation of you know being a, a very LGBTQ friendly city. Which I think it is in a lot of ways, and and it's just so funny during you know the time of Pride every year, you really see what they call like rainbow capitalism in action. You know what I mean? Like people just you know trying to get a a buck from uh, the community as they come into town. But I just feel like uh, like with so many other things, you know, Josh, whether we're talking about racist police terror or the uh, uh, abortion rights struggle and things like that, um, you know, this is uh, a movement that uh, has always been spurred on by uh, uh, an organized radical struggle in the streets. And I think that's something that we clearly need right now. I mean, we've been discussing on the show about uh, uh, the attacks on uh, trans people and all these sorts of things uh, uh, happening uh, in terms of attacks against the LGBTQ community and the very kind of movement that birthed uh, Pride Month. Is uh, what is I think is going to continue to be needed if we're uh, uh, going to continue to struggle, uh, uh, you know, for this community's liberation.
5: You know, absolutely. Uh, pride, as I, I think many people uh, mentioned, started as a protest, as a riot uh, when Marsha P. Johnson threw, uh, threw a, I think I believe threw a brick at um, a police officer in at the uh, Stonewall Inn, uh, which was the bar uh, in New York. Um, and so, you know, understanding that and like understanding that pride started that way we can never really just let a co-optation of pride month or any any sort of uh movement uh be accepted as as what what is uh these these celebrations because pride is like a lot more than just uh rainbow flags on the uh the logos of like chase bank or like uh, Raytheon having a like a rainbow on their missile or something like that. Pride is a a, a lot more than just this uh, representation from what what companies that are still, uh, for example, uh, Chase and Raytheon in this example, merchants of death. Um, that right. it's, it's it's a lot it's a lot more than that, and so it's a really important to like always recognize the the people's movement um, that people like you and me are in the streets struggling for uh, LG, LGBTQ equality or uh, against the uh, rollback of these abortion rights or against racist police terror that um, it's it's not you know these corporations are like you know joseph biden who's giving us these things but that we're taking them yeah definitely and uh we're happy to be joined for the hour today by ted
0: rawl an award winning editorial cartoonist and columnist and author of the graphic novel the stringer ted thanks so much for joining us Absolutely. And Ted, you recently published a piece on your website, Rawl.com, entitled Our Culture of Violence Comes from the White House. And you were speaking about, uh, you know, the ongoing aftermath of the Uvalde, Texas shooting uh, the serious questions that are surrounding uh, the behavior for the police, the action and, and inaction of those same uh, uh, forces. And in your piece, you point out a, a fundamental piece of hypocrisy as it pertains to the United States, because the the U.S., whether, excuse me, whether the leader is uh, a Democrat or Republican, uh, uh, you know, regardless of how popular they may be, they all condemn violence like we see in that of a mass shooting like in Uvalde or in uh Buffalo but all of them also are 100% in support of the uh, imperialist violence that happens abroad. And I mean, you gave the uh, uh, example of, you know, Hillary Clinton and her, you know, laughing off the the assassination of Muammar Gaddafi of Libya with the whole we came, we saw uh, uh, he died sort of piece and just, uh, you know, numerous uh, uh, examples of this. And I mean, even if we look at uh, uh, Joe Biden and, you know, the ongoing, you know, uh, uh, droning campaigns and missile strikes and just the ongoing uh, institution of never-ending war that's happening in the United States, I mean, it it makes these kinds of, you know, exhortations around, you know, violence and how we, you know, of unity and how we got to come together and how something must be done, you know, about this. And I mean, I agree wholeheartedly that some Something must be done about these ongoing issues of mass shootings and things like this. I do not believe that those in power are genuinely interested in, in doing so, Ted. But what is clear is that, you know, the U.S. government is perfectly fine with violence as long as it's state sanctioned violence that they control and benefit from.
3: Yeah, that's right. When we talk about state violence, right, like domestically, uh, the state reserves the right to impose capital punishment on those it uh, sees fit to, to do that with. Um, it, it. Of course, uh, prison is a form of extremely brutal violence uh, that's state-sanctioned, um, you know, to the point where it's even part of the culture of our, our comedies to make jokes about, uh, you know, oh, if a person goes to prison, they're going to get raped. Ha, 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 that's hilarious. Um, you know, it's uh, and, and certainly you see it even more on the international scene where you can... Uh, otherize, uh foreigners, uh, non-Americans, non-white people, uh, and, and it's easier to dehumanize them. And, the, you know, it, it's startling to see the uh, glaring, to say inconsistency, but really 180 degree contrast between, you know, uh, people like Obama and Biden who say, you know, there's no place for violence in our public life. No place for violence. Uh, America is not a place for violence. You would think This was the Dalai Lama we're talking about here. Um, You know, these are people who not only do they secretly engage and authorize, uh, you know, wet ops, black ops, uh, coup uh, d'etats, assassinations like the assassination of of Osama bin Laden. Um, You know, it is an assassination. It's not like he refused to come out and was and, you know, he was shot in the crossfire. He was captured alive. And then he was executed after being captured alive, um, you know, on the approval of of the people in the situation room. The violence of those, uh, you know, the thing is, not only are they so brutal and bloodthirsty that it's terrifying to really contemplate, uh, you know, think about someone like George W. Bush, you know, starting a war for rank political purposes that had no justification whatsoever – that led to the deaths of over a million people and destroyed an entire country and destabilized an entire region, affecting tens of millions of people. Um, You know, but they do all these things, but they're not even ashamed of it. You know, I mean, you think about, like, other rulers of other countries, uh, historically and at present time, they they order assassinations, they they, they engage in, in violence. But in most other countries, uh, there's, they at least know that like they're supposed to 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 deny involvement or culpability. They're supposed to be ashamed of it. They're supposed, you know, it's not something to be bragging about. But Americans brag about it. They make jokes about it, like bin, Laden, uh, like uh, famously Obama at the White House Correspondents' Dinner uh, when uh, the Jonas Brothers, and there's a name from the past, um, were. Uh, you know, in attendance. And uh, he and uh, Obama said, Oh, you know, my daughters are a big fan of yours, but don't get any ideas. Two words, predator drone. You'll never see it coming. Ha ha ha. Um, you know, that's just like, it, it, it's, you just wouldn't hear, uh, you know, the president of, of a European country talk like that. Um, you just wouldn't hear most leaders talk like that. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing to to listen to these people say, "How could something like this happen?" And to be clear, there's numerous, numerous causes that contribute to uh, something like the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Right? I mean, obviously the prevalence of guns. Uh, you know, there and mental, you know, uh, widespread mental illness, which I think is in large part uh, caused by the the stresses of of a capitalist society. Um, and there are other reasons too. Um, but there's, but ne- and you know, but nevertheless, uh, the the culture of violence, um, you know, it, it's it's in our, it's in Hollywood, it's in our video games, it's every, it's in our schools, uh, you know, we're taught over and over and over to glorify violence, and you know, it's certainly a major contributing factor. Is the very same political leaders who claim to be against it. Uh, you know, they talk about it when they when they talk about their dealings with foreign countries. Um, you know, they, they there's kind of like, you know, like we, we have to talk about what is a culture of violence? You know, a culture of violence is a is a culture that goes to violence uh, as a primary or a secondary resort rather than as an absolute last resort in order to resolve a conflict. And we definitely have that in the United States. We don't you know, when when there's a conflict we don't say, "Oh, let's uh, let's bring in the UN, let's negotiate, uh, let's have peace talks." You know, uh, let's have a summit. Um, let's bring this in for a landing. Let's not let things get too crazy. You know, that's not the world we live in at all, and uh, it's not it's not the society we live in.
0: Yeah, for sure. And you know, the thing about it, and why it's important to even raise this, I think, Ted, is to show that you know, when when these tragedies happen, when these mass shootings happen whoever is in national leadership at that time, whether it's Republican or Democrat, somehow the source or the root of the issue is everything else except uh, the, the internal issues of the United States itself, which are directly connected to some of the external issues in terms of, I mean, U.S. imperialism, frankly, which is what we're discussing. I mean, it reminds me of when, you know, Martin Luther King talks about how uh, uh, the 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 mainstream press in the United States applauded him for advocating for nonviolence against, you know, racist sheriffs in Alabama and Mississippi. But when he, you know, implored the U.S. to be nonviolent in Vietnam, it became like uh, uh, an issue, you know. And, and so this is a part of the frustration with, you know, this completely predictable cyclical response that we see um, every time to this uh, uh, to these kinds of incidents, and when we see this refusal to acknowledge uh, the central role of uh, uh, U.S. society and U.S. culture itself in these things, well, then that basically guarantees that it's only a matter of time before another incident like this happens because the fundamental issues uh, haven't been addressed. And the reason why they haven't been addressed is because these are things that are directly tied to the power, at least in my opinion, directly tied to the power and influence of the ruling class and the wealthy elite of this country. And so to concretely address these issues would be to, uh, transgress the class interests of, uh, that element of the country. You know what I mean? And as such, they're treated as sacrosanct. And the only thing that we're able to receive are these, you know, uh, uh platitudes and, uh, you know, uh, uh, token efforts from the government, but never anything that's going to really address the problem. And it's just, Pretty dark, I think, actually, Ted, that these things that are put forth as solutions, oftentimes it's really just uh, a window dressing and not even really designed to to address the problem.
3: Yeah, or it's a, even worse than that, Sean, it's a, it's a Trojan horse. I mean, you know, for example, uh, we're hearing a lot of talk right now about red flag laws. Uh, you know, hey, if you know, if you see someone doing something, say something, right? Like if, uh, someone's uh, you know and it sounds like it makes sense like oh if you see someone post a violent manifesto on on facebook uh, you know drop a dime on them uh you know and and we'll get them the help that they need and i'm sure you you're you're about as scared as i am about this idea cuz it's for me absolutely terrifying the idea that you can uh you that anybody could just call a government hotline and say you know uh Sean, I don't know, like the way Sean what Sean Blackman's been posting on Instagram lately. And uh, you know, I I I think you should go check him out. You know, we don't know. He could he might have a screw loose, he might hurt somebody. And then, you know, uh that's you know, we don't want to give them that kind of power because the truth is I don't really think uh, you know, and I don't think anyone really thinks that when the government says they're there to help, they're really there to help anyone but themselves and the elites that they serve. So uh, you know there 's uh, the Trojan horse aspect of this you know terrifies me, even the gun control suggestions uh, because you know there 's an argument to be made that uh, you know the ability, the right to bear arms is a source of potential freedom uh, against tyranny. I mean I personally think there should be you know regulations there should you should have to be licensed, but the point is when the solutions are coming from the ruling classes from the, from the government, you know, you you really do want to think twice, four times you know, a lot because it's often, uh, you know, more oppression, uh, in the disguise of solving a problem.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, uh, it, it's, it's the reason why I tend to see these, uh, shootings and these terror attacks as a kind of blowback uh, on the United States, as almost an example of the chickens coming home to roost. I mean, you know, this country has planted seeds of, uh, I mean, just just the most shocking kind of of violence. I mean, literally for several centuries at this point. And if you don't think that some of that isn't going to turn back around on the U.S., in a, a, a number of ways. And then I think that we're fooling ourselves. I think the, the the ongoing issue of shootings is an issue in that. I think the 9-11 attacks are an issue of that in terms of the violence that the U.S. Um, uh, facilitates and supports around the world. And uh, I think it's just a prime example of why the whole of this society has to change, not just issues around gun laws and things like that, which, you know, uh, certainly could be addressed in a critical way. I think, you know, the the way that we see it play out typically is really not enough. But uh, even still, a, a complete, I think, new system and society is the only thing that's gonna really signal a change in this country. But that would also necessitate the removal of these same class elements that I'm discussing And I think we should be clear that these folks are going to, you know, really fight and put up a serious uh, resistance to the power that they have over the wealth of this country and of this earth. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
3: By Any Means Necessary.
0: To so by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luke And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open two zero two five two one one three two zero. 1320. That's two zero two five two one one three two zero. 1320. I continue to be joined here by Ted Rawl. Want to give a big shout out to the By Any Means Necessary chat. Uh, I know some of you are having difficulties with uh, the Rumble page. I know you're you're like trying to watch on Rumble while also listening on the Sputnik side, and we we just really appreciate the fact that uh, you all want to uh, hear the show that much, and definitely. Uh, 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 encourage you as always to spread the word about uh, uh, where we're up on SputnikNews.com and Rumble and MAVE and all those sorts of things. And uh, Ted, you published another uh, piece recently on your website that was talking about a form of economic warfare. That the U.S. is is rather fond of this piece entitled First They Came for the Foreigners Bank Accounts. And you're talking about the issues of sanctions and um, seizing the assets of, of countries and and governments and things like that. I mean, uh, uh, Joe Biden did this with the Afghanistan Bank. I mean, uh, not that long ago, you know, following uh, that complete a uh, uh, boondoggle uh, uh, of a you know, conflict that the U.S. was involved in there in decades. I mean, we're, we're talking about billions of dollars of money that rightfully belongs to the uh, Afghan people that is just being held hostage, you know, by the U.S. And this is just one example. And one point that you made in it that I thought it is noteworthy, Ted, is about how, you know, the average U.S. citizen that sees this or is at some level aware of this Um, Like we were saying in the last part of our conversation, we're made to think that this is good and to our our, our benefit somehow. But I don't think we we often consider how these same issues um, can be used against us. I mean, it's like if we look at the issue of censorship, which we've been talking about a lot lately here on uh, uh, the show. And so the U.S., uh, uh, not only the government, but the mainstream media and these big tech companies who at this point to me are just out and out colluding with um, the state. Uh, they're told that, you know, these scarlet letter state media uh, labels on, you know, social media and these, uh, you know, quote unquote, disinformation policies of Twitter and things like that. And the deplatforming of, you know, uh, uh, Russian media and, you know, PayPal restricting the uh, or really uh, sort of, you know, holding hostage the, the accounts of different alternative media platforms. The American people are told that all those things are good because it helps fights, you know, Russian disinformation and propaganda and it's to their benefit. And aren't you glad that we, uh, the U.S. government and these tech companies are protecting you from uh, the big bad uh, uh, Russian disinformation machine? But it, 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 it's not considered about how those same uh, tools of censorship and repression can be used against us. And I think this piece about this forfeit seizure um, sort of speaks to that as well. So I was hoping you could sort of break that down, Ted, and how you see not only the impact of that kind of policy abroad, but how it could uh, also possibly be reflected uh, here at home.
3: Sure. Well, thanks, Sean. I mean, the, the thing is that uh, when you see anything, any form of state oppression or repression that is uh, initially marketed as something that's used against people that you may not personally care about or that you might actually actively dislike, the odds are that it can and will be eventually used against people you do like, and it might eventually be used against you. Um, You know, sort of like we were in in an analogous form of what we were talking about in the last segment. Again, it's easier to do this politically, to get away with it, uh, when you're seizing the assets of of countries that are not close to the United States, uh, whether that be uh, Afghanistan or Iran or, uh, or Russia, or there's been many other cases. And, you know, it's a little disconcerting. You know, I mean, like, uh, you know, I'm not a, a, I'm not a billionaire. I don't own a super yacht. So maybe it's hard for me to relate to someone who does. But there's something a little, you know, in a capitalist society that supposedly values property rights, there's something very strange about, uh, you know, a system that allows Your you to have your yacht or your bank account frozen or seized um, because you have of your political affiliations. uh, You know you're not even personally involved in the government. You're a private citizen, but your you know your friends with say President Putin. So they take your 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 ship. I mean what? Um, And the thing is. It's you know there was a there was a really great after the Russian sanctions started uh, there was a great quote also about the Afghanistan seizures by the uh, Chi- by the Chinese government where they said you know basically look you know in China we we know from our history about highway banditry <laughs> this is pretty much just that same sort of behavior and it is it's it's might makes right it's like oh you have something we want and we're gonna take it. And on a domestic level, it happens here, too. Um, You know, I I think asset forfeiture is perhaps, uh, you know, one of the biggest, most important, underreported stories Mm -hmm. in the United States today. Um, You know, it's like literally it's a massive business. Police departments and uh, on the local and state and even federal levels uh, all over the country, uh, they can literally pull anyone over. They can pull... You over while you're driving down the street, and actually, there's there's considerable evidence that if you drive a really cool car, local state local police departments will be on the lookout for that because under asset forfeiture law, they can just pull you over on a pretext. They don't have to have probable cause. Uh, They can say say that they suspect. All they have to do is say, "I suspect that uh, this person was involved." In uh, you know that they received this 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 money through illegal activity, they're involved in some sort of illegal activity. It doesn't have to be defined, much less uh, provided evidence or much less proven. And in fact, even if there's not there's no conviction, let's say you're tried but you walk, or let's say you're they, they, the prosecutors decide there's not enough evidence to charge you. Or let's say the police department know they're making the whole thing up and they're not going to file any charges against you and they just really want your cool car, uh, they can take it. And you walk away and you could sue to try to get your car back, but you're going to have to hire a uh, an attorney. It's going to cost you a lot of money. And you know many times uh, people who, you know, either they can't be bothered, they, they, they know the odds are, are long, or uh, very commonly the amount of money that the police will seize. they'll search someone, they'll take, say, $3,000 off of their, out of their, out of, off the person, they'll keep it. The person's never charged, but then if they go to a lawyer, the lawyer's like, look, my is $5,000. So we can sue, but I'm going to cost. It's going to cost you more to sue than the money that the police stole from you. And this is happening all over the country, all the time. This has been widely reported in uh, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, Washington Post. But there hasn't been follow-up. There's been some cool long stories, but it's not like an ongoing crusade. And so they get away with it. We're talking about billions of dollars are are seized by the United by U.S. law enforcement agencies. Law enforcement is such that is an incredibly hilarious term for them, since they're like law breaking agencies in so many respects aside from this one. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's basically uh, you know when you see those flashing lights in the rearview mirror, you might get more than a ticket. They might take your car. They might they might rob you. Literally, these are robbers, um, highway robbers, and uh, and nothing's being done about it. And so, you know, when you see this whole sort of kleptocracy at work, you know, you realize they're not even true to the values of the system that they themselves are propping up, which is, you know, sort of a form of gangster free market capitalism. Because capitalism doesn't work if you, if you have a profit incentive, you accrue, you, accrue um, you know, you manage to save some money, you do well in business, and then the state can just put their paws on it and take it, <laughs> that system does not work, because the fundamental thing, the fundamental incentive is you might get rich, and, uh, and then you get to keep your money and enjoy it. So, uh, you know, obviously, this is a system that doesn't serve 99.9% of the people. But, you know, what doing that stuff, it's not even serving the 0.1%. Yeah, that's
0: a fact. That's a fact. And, you know, I'm um, talking about this asset forfeiture, I think is important. And you are correct. It, it is sort of an aspect of things that does not get a ton of coverage. But I mean, as, as you've been saying, it's straight up legalized theft and uh, it's a theft that is uh, sanctioned and allowed for these policing agencies to do, which, as you're noting, uh, uh, Ted, it sort of compounds, you know, the abuse. The abusive nature of uh, uh, policing. So not only could you be sort of physically brutalized and, and even outright killed, but they'll pick your pockets uh, uh, at the end of it. And I think just think that says a lot about not only the character of uh, policing in the United States, but um, the sorts of things that you know are considered okay when they're when they're sanctioned by the state. Now you know if 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 you know they tell us that. Uh, even though you know you're robbed of, uh, uh, oftentimes the ability to make a decent living, to make a different, uh, a decent wage, um, to have benefits and health care and time off and all those sorts of things that people need, you know, it, it will deny you access to all of that. That often forces people to do things like steal and things like that. But, you know, when they steal from you, when the government steals from you, the police steals from you, it's all cool. And see, I feel like things like that to, <clears throat> are a part of Why the political really and the social situation as well in the United States is so difficult and so fraught at this moment because, excuse me, all these different aspects whether we're talking about the inherently violent nature of this society, the inherently exploitative nature of this uh, uh, system, you know, all of these things that have been grinding, uh, grinding along all this time and for all these years are uh, being felt acutely, I think, by more and more people in the way that others have been feeling them for a, a, a long time. Uh, and as such, uh, I just feel like, we're reaching a point where things can't continue to operate the way that they have. I mean, we've noted on the show about how, you know, inevitably, as we move towards the midterms and the next presidential election in 2024, that we already know that we're going to be hearing, you know, the same old lines about how important it is for us to vote and how we got to keep the Republicans out and all of that. Even after the uh, uh, Democrats have delivered nothing really but, but broken promises in the time that um, Biden has been a uh, uh, president. And so it seems that on the one hand, it seems likely that, you know, the state or that element of the ruling class uh, will get more repressive in order to to, to keep things together from their side, uh, while that could also trigger a kind of uh, resistance and struggle from the part of the masses of poor working and uh, uh, oppressed people in general towards that end. You know what I mean? And so in a way, I feel like You know, the U.S. government through the machinations of uh, the capitalist system is sort of uh, digging its own grave uh, uh, in a way. And it just feels like we're in this um, sort of a transition period from one point in history to uh, uh, the other, Ted, where a lot of people are feeling the squeeze and there's a lot of pain uh, that seems like it's yet to be felt.
3: Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right, Sean. I mean, you know, one of the, the things that's interesting when you're looking historically at uh, revolutionary moments uh you know you, you'll see that there's sort of some consistent uh, you know some consistent components to the witch's brew that leads to a potential revolution uh, you know and one of them is sort of the uh when the bourgeoisie the middle class become uh, they start to feel that they they don't they can't really get ahead they can't advance they can't uh you know they're 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 being uh they feel oppressed themselves by the state um and you you know you sort of saw that in the russian revolution you saw that in the in the french revolution you saw it uh you know to a certain extent under in the british uprising under oliver cromwell and it, it's like so you know the the working class and the poor are sort of consistently oppressed usually under a capitalist system. But when you start to see the pain, the, you know, the middle class, you know, howling the way they are now about things like, you know, soaring inflation, high gas prices um, in, and the state, you know, out of control health care costs, uh, the incomplete, un- un- insane unaff- unaffordability of a college degree that they then tell you you have to have just to get an entry level job doing anything. Um, you, you, you I think you see that what you're saying is right. They are absolutely, um, you know, they're, they're in danger. They're, they're just shooting themselves in the foot over and over and over, the ruling classes, I mean. And uh, it's, they're, I think they're, you know, they're, they're making big trouble for themselves. And as usual, you know, they don't really, they don't really understand their, the position that they're putting themselves into. They could fix this problem. They could get themselves out of it. But they're not going
0: to. Yeah, I think I think that's the case. I think that's the case. And um, as such, when we see that that's how the electeds are operating, we see that's how um, the people who call themselves our leaders is operating. As you know, the masses of poor working and oppressed people, we have to ask ourselves, well, how then? Are we going to respond and what are we going to do um, uh, uh, in terms of how all of this is playing out? Because ultimately, it's almost like you have two choices. I mean, you either, you know, let things sort of continue to play out as they are or we do what we've seen done throughout history and uh, uh, take up the the cause of uh taking our destiny into our own hands and and changing things uh for the better which you know is the only way that a lot of the fundamental changes the positive sort of beneficial changes for people has happened uh in this country and what's wild to me ted on that note is how it's like if you look at how the US is operating internationally you know uh, whether it's uh, the war in ukraine Uh, Whether it's this, you know, ridiculous uh, summit of the Americas uh, that uh, Biden is trying to put on that just already seems like a flop because of how uh, critical other governments are about them, excluding Nicaragua, Venezuela and Cuba and things like that in the same way that the U.S. tries to isolate other countries. Would end up really sort of isolating itself through its own actions by driving these other governments um, closer together in cooperation. I think it's, it's a similar thing with this because the more that uh, uh, this government tries to uh, uh, hold together a, a crumbling uh, system, uh, I think the more it will actually start to crumble and the more that uh, uh, people will continue to take notice. But as I often point out, Um, You know, that's not a consciousness that's going to develop on its own, no matter how bad things get. There has to be a direct, explicit and intentional intervention by uh, uh, organizers and activists to really shift the thinking and to really develop uh, working class consciousness and socialist consciousness in this country. And that's going to be necessary because when we look at. The hundred and forty million people leaving living at or below uh, 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 the poverty line, if we're not talking about really moving people in the millions and moving um, uh, a majority, if not decisive minority of that element. Well, then it's hard to see how we'll seriously be able to develop the kind of force necessary to really be able to take on this system and to confront it in uh, the way that it needs to. You know what I mean? And so when you have a situation Where, you know, we're being told that all these good things are going to happen and that we're going to propose this and that uh, progressive measure and things like this to help people. And then that doesn't come into fruition and we continue to languish under this pandemic, with over a million people dead at this point, at a certain juncture, your words and your rhetoric start to ring hollow. And I think that uh, uh, the halls of power in the United States are really starting to feel that in a real way. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. back to by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc i'm your host sean blackman here of jackie Lukman, and as always we are your guide for connecting the political social and economic movements shaping the world around us my dear friends phone lines are still open 202-521-1320 That's two- 2521 two five two one one three two zero. I am here. Ted Rawl is here as we continue. and we have a caller on the line here, Alex. tell us what's on your mind.,
6: you know, um, great show as usual. I'm just following along with this. And kind of wanted to ask how, how critical you feel um, it is to emphasize the internationalist character that we really need to display in, in times like this and also the, the gender, like liberatory um analysis that needs to come into play in this that can sometimes get lost i feel like if we start kind of speaking to things in a um sort of class reductionist or just strictly economic uh framing and i'm not saying you guys are doing that i just mean in general that's kind of what i feel like i see a lot is is a a sort of a, a reactionary tendency to not want to address those issues and to kind of think of them as side issues when in my opinion they're Actually, some of the most important issues to be uh, touching on with regard to, you know, ruling class ideas as well. Um, And I appreciate your time. Thanks.
0: Well, thank you, Alex. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, it's a good question. And when we talk about um, how we analyze uh, uh, the issue of gender within this context, what I often see in this current moment, the issue—it's a problem between having a critical. Materialist analysis of the question and this kind of uh academic uh postmodern sort of way of, of discussing the question. And when, you know, and I'm discussing postmodernism here as a way of viewing the world and of viewing uh uh politics that basically stepped in the vacuum that was left after these uh, uh, Red Scare attacks on socialist, communist, revolutionaries, radicals, and progressives in the United States that made uh, these kinds of materialist forms of analyses like Marxism and and things like that, you know, it it made them scary, it stigmatized them, it demonized them. And so, you know, these like petty bourgeois uh, scholars and academics sort of uh, conjured up this whole other way of viewing things that that, that is reductive. But although it's reductive in, in, in different ways, it's not class reductive because it, you know, I think uh, sort of relegates the question of class oftentimes to the margins of an argument. But when we talk about gender exploitation, when we talk about um, the super exploitation of women, when we talk about anti-LGBTQ bigotry, I think we have to view it specifically as its own kind of capitalist exploitation. Like with uh, the issue of women, we're talking about a system that literally makes women into property. And that's what's at root when we look at this issue of abortion rights or the gender pay gap, all these sorts of things. Women quite literally are less valued as people in this society. And so the way that these institutions operate and the social attitudes reflect that. You see what I mean? The same with uh, uh, anti LGBTQ bigotry, because this is a community that does not fit neatly into the uh, uh, traditional equation of the uh, nuclear family and how central that is to uh, sort of reproducing a lot of issues uh, uh, within the capitalist system. Now, I want to be very clear about what I'm saying when 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 I discuss this, because I'm not uh, anti family. There's some there's like this weird uh, uh, minority on uh, the left that is like straight up against the family as a structure. No, that's not the issue. What, What I'm discussing is the dynamics that happens when you have a family dynamic that is forged within the context of this a fundamentally abusive, fundamentally brutal, fundamentally exploitative system. Because, you know, I think about this a lot. And I don't know if folks uh, think about it this way either, but I really feel like the capitalist system and the culture that emerges from it just has a vulgarizing effect on our relationships. It really bastardizes and uh, uh, the relationships that human beings have with each other, the way we view each other within these dynamics, the way that we view ourselves. I mean, it creates a very sick, unhealthy way of how we deal with each other as people and certainly how we uh, view other folks throughout this planet. And so, you know, I I agree that uh, uh, there has to be a sort of deeper understanding of uh, 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 the issue of gender exploitation. And if we're not, having that as one of the core aspects when we think about a new system and how to develop a movement to bring about a new system, then I think we're we're making a mistake. Uh, Ted, I want to bring you in. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that.
3: No, I mean, uh, you have, uh, you know, Sean, I mean, everything you've said, I, I agree with 100 million percent. Uh, your Your analysis is right. I mean, I've been guilty from time to time of sort of thinking, well, you know, you can sort of you can put all of these sort of identity politics issues in, you know, underneath uh, class analysis, because sort of beneath or subservient to class analysis, because fundamentally, if you look at uh, sort of counterfactuals, for example, you know, 150 years ago, right, the discrimination against Asian Americans was far worse than it is today. It's far from gone, but it's far worse. And there, and you know, as the average income of Asian Americans has improved, so has their socioeconomic standing and the discrimination has dropped. So you can sort of see how uh ec- you know economics is close to being destiny under a capitalist system. But I think I have been but I think that you know it's facile to say that. I think the way you put it is better. It's it is a, you know, issues like LGBTQ uh, discrimination are you know they're 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 their own forms of classism and uh, and manifestations. They could exist outside of a cap of a capitalist uh, system. Those forms of discrimination, uh, and so I think they deserve and require their own separate analysis. Now the caller also asked about the need for an internationalist uh, perspective, and I think that uh, you know with the with the internet, it's certainly easier. To make common cause. You know, I, I don't know how in, say, the early 1900s, socialists could possibly really have aspired to any kind of global revolution uh, that was going to happen sort of simultaneously. I, I think that was going to be one of those things that everybody understood had to come, uh, had to originate within each nation state. Uh, and then, you know, you, you'd, each country would develop socialism and then, uh, form solidarity across national borders that eventually, hopefully, could be eliminated one day. Uh, but I think uh, you know now you could see that kind of international organizing happening because of the technology. It's a small, it's a very, very small world now. But at the same time, I but I still think we it is easier to start on the local, state, you know, the local and uh, national level in every country just from an organizing perspective, because, I mean, look, look at us. Uh, you know, we don't have any real revolutionary organizations in the United States. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine how we're going to make common cause with people in other countries. We should probably, you know, get organized here.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's. Uh, I think that's why it's so important that you know we we continue to engage in just those kinds of organizing efforts to develop the kind of force we need. Um, uh, in our last uh, ten minutes or so, Ted, I wanted to be sure to bring up this issue around uh, uh, Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen talking about a deepening cooperation between the U.S. and uh, Taiwan militarily. And of course, this comes not long after, you know, Joe Biden's quote-unquote gaffe about uh, saying that it would you know, assist Taiwan in the event of an invasion by China, which of course contradicts, uh, what the U S acknowledges through, uh, uh, the one China policy. And Biden just literally talking out of both sides in his mouth saying that the U S you know, respects and acknowledges the one China rule. But while at, while out of the other side of the mouth saying that they just have like no plans of actually uh, observing it, uh, by the letter and spirit, you know what I mean? And so, you know, I don't know what you, uh, make of this, uh, move here, Ted, and I feel like there's relevance to this and the whole issue of the war in Ukraine uh, uh, as well. But I mean, you know, the U.S. and the way that it's orienting Taiwan, uh, you know, it's just obviously a kind of way to um, get a jab in or do more saber rattling, you know, with Beijing, which, you know, uh, uh, can't can't end well, as I think we continue to see the danger of an open conflict between the U.S. and Russia increasing.
3: No, that's right. I mean, you you would think that, uh, you know, the White House would have a full with, uh, you know, Ukraine, considering that, uh, you know, mainstream media reports to the contrary, uh, you know, frankly, Ukraine is losing. And uh, that means the U.S. is losing. Uh, you know, Russia pretty much is, is has, seems obvious that they got what they came for. And and, uh, you know, they're they're pretty much uh, the next step is some sort of, uh, you know, formal partition. Uh, and I, I think, you know, it's, we're going to look back and be like, well, why did that war you know, ever have to happen. Uh, you know, the, if the Ukrainians had been willing to negotiate, it was probably all unnecessary. Uh, now, you look at the uh, situation with Taiwan, it's an absurdity. I mean, the, look, there's so much absurdity go around. The one China policy is absurd. Uh, there was the fiction for for decades that the uh, KMT, the Kuomintang regime under Chiang Kai-shek, the di- U.S.-backed dictator, was going to eventually return from exile and recapture the mainland mainland China from the Chinese there was the fiction that communist China was temporary it was not going to be uh you know that that they were just we we didn't have to acknowledge them then Nixon and Carter acknowledged them and then said okay well there's still just one China and we don't really know what to do about this Taiwan thing and then there's the Taiwanese who are like who are uh, clearly afraid to um you know, they're afraid—the Taiwanese are afraid to uh, declare independence uh, for fear of provoking China, I think, understandably. But now the U.S. is like, well, wait, we're going to defend a country that we don't recognize as a country. We don't have a an embassy in Taipei. Taipei—the the, the Taiwanese don't have an embassy in the United States. Uh, They—you know, I mean, we're we're going to go to war over a non-country, over a province of China, which is what we—I mean, the whole thing is it's insanity. Um, and, you know, per- personally, I, I think uh, common sense would dictate that uh, Taiwan, sh- you know, Taiwan is de facto independent. I don't think China's going to go to war over it. Um, I, I think there, there needs to be a summit meeting between, uh, you know, the great powers, but particularly between the Taiwanese and the Chinese, obviously. But the U.S. could be at the table. Um, and they need to negotiate and, and say, look, you know, let's, let's bring this in for a landing instead of basically, uh, you know, like how the U.S. wants to fight to the last Ukrainian. And well, maybe they want to fight to the last Taiwanese, too. Uh, but, you know, the Taiwanese are being used here. And some, you know, having been to Taiwan, a lot of Taiwanese people don't like it. They feel like the U.S. just uses this as an example, a way to sell sell them weapons, uh, obsolete weapons that would not ever stave off a Chinese Invasion. Uh, even the term "invasion" doesn't make much sense. Right? Can China really invade itself? Um, you know, it's 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 just uh, there's so much ridiculousness to go around. But it's the Taiwanese are being used here.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting that well, number one, you know, I agree, and I've been saying that you know China can't invade Taiwan any more than the U.S. government can invade Wisconsin. But what you note about the sentiment amongst uh, some rank and file people in Taiwan, I think, is noteworthy because we never we never hear that. You know what I mean? It seems like all we ever hear is from, you know, these separatist forces in Taiwan that quite naturally uh, want to work with the U.S., who quite naturally the U.S. would want to um, support because their interests dovetail with that of uh, the new Cold War against both uh, China and Russia. You know what I mean? And so, you know, as we continue to see how U.S. foreign policy is uh, uh, beginning to uh, sort of really reveal itself, I think. And even when we discuss the war in Ukraine, it's just been so wild to see these different government officials. Be up front in a way, like starting to be like a little more honest about what the u s is actually after there in terms of wanting to weaken russia to uh, carry out regime change in Russia to where Vladimir Putin is no longer president that someone more malleable and uh, susceptible to the whims of Washington would take his place and this pretending to to care about the Ukrainian people and sending you know all this money for weapons and and things like that I mean w- once you take a step back and and really, um, uh, look at it, Ted, it's clear that, you know, these conflicts are not being waged for, uh, the benefit of any, uh, uh, population, if you will. It's not being done for the benefit of the people of the United States or Ukraine or Russia or China or Taiwan or Cuba or Nicaragua or Venezuela or anything, uh, uh, like that. Now, this is clearly being done, uh, to protect you know, the profits of the war profiteers and uh, uh, sort of connected to that. And perhaps most importantly, is to try to maintain a unipolar world under U.S. control. And I don't think that can be overstated, Ted, about how the U.S. sees its hegemony sort of slipping away and while personally I don't think that you know uh, US imperialism is just going to crumble tomorrow anything like that it's clear that those in power are aware that the system is in danger and doing everything they can um uh to try to hold the thing in place you know with duct tape super glue and all of that you know what I mean and so uh uh but the way things are playing out it seems more so that uh the world seems more interested in a more uh uh a multipolar sort of way where there are sort of multiple, um, you know, uh, interests that are all being sort of, you know, legitimately respected and acknowledged, at, you know, as opposed to simply the the interest of one country that's trying to lord over everyone else. And so it actually it kind of feels like the U.S. doesn't have much space to really uh uh continue to remain in the way that it is and i think that's a part of why we see that washington continuing to be so willing ted uh uh, to threaten war for it to maintain its place
3: yeah no i think that's right sean uh there is a uh the 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 desire for a multipolar world i mean it makes sense right unless you live in unless you're american there's no advantage to uh, a world dominated by the United States. And even if you're an American citizen, there's no advantage to it because you're just, uh, you know, being taxed to death and uh, you're in, you know, your your sons or daughters might be sent off to feed some idiotic war somewhere. Um, You know, when the, when the Soviet union collapsed in 1991, everybody talked about a peace dividend, right? But there's never been a peace dividend because the the Soviet Union was the counterbalance to American power, and the and instead of like backing down, you know, basically all the the U S was exposed because throughout the Cold War, the U S, which constantly led the Soviet Union in developing new weapon systems and in and in defense spending, and the Soviets were always trying to play catch up. But uh, you know, they the, the Soviets always wanted disarmament talks. They always wanted. To uh, you know, bring things in for a soft landing, but the Americans kept being more and more aggressive, and you know, at, and the Americans kept saying, "Well, we've got to spend because the big bad Russians are going to come and, and nuke us during the Cold War." Well, the Cold War is over in 1991, and suddenly you know, there's no there's no Russian enemy anymore. So what happens? The U.S. could have decided to uh, cut their defense spending uh, to a small fraction of what it was. But instead, they 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 kept ramping it up, and they used they took advantage of the absence of the USSR on the world stage to run wild and invade. You know, uh, Iraq and Pan- uh, they inv- and uh, you know Iraq twice, <laughs> Afghanistan once, uh, the you know Bosnia, um, and over and over and over. Uh, you know, and not to mention all the covert wars in places like Somalia, and Pakistan and Yemen. So. Um, you know, it's, it's clear that the unipolar world does not make the world a safer place. Uh, you know, you power is best diffused.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Ted, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Spuddy. You can watch it in D.C. Be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.